Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So, um, this is a hard text to preach. I'm sure you're shocked by that. But actually, it's not a hard text because of the tent peg, although I watched all of you turn pale in that moment. Given the bloodthirstiness of these early stories of the Israelites, if you read these first, I don't know, ten books of the Bible, it's, you, you just as well think Stephen King had written them. I mean, they're not super nice and sweet and, yeah, no. And this one story of Jael and her tent peg, that's nothing compared to the rest of it. That is not our problem here today. No, the story is a hard one to preach because it's so messy. Both in the story that it tells in this moment and in the interpretations that we give to it. It's messy in the ways that we have to undo generations of translation that impose all sorts of unhelpful cultural baggage, starting with the marital status of both Deborah and Jael. One called the wife of Lapidoth, the other the wife of Heber the Kenite. Except, of course, that the word wife and the word woman are identical in Hebrew in this particular instances, as they are in a lot of languages, because what else could a woman be, after all? And while Heber the Kenite is elsewhere referred to as an actual human being, Lapidoth is not. And it's, a, it's an in, very intriguing concept of a first name because the word means lightning or fire. So assuming that it refers to a husband and is not some form of adjective describing Deborah is already setting us up for a very particular interpretation. Because it changes the meaning somewhat to hear Deborah, a prophet, a fiery woman, in ways that allow her to stand in her own power, as unexpected and possibly as uncomfortable as that might be to us hearing the story. While Jael's status is uncertain, Heber might be the person who is referred to earlier in the text, or it might actually be the encampment, the settlement, the village that he created. And Jael, woman of Heber, could mean various things that we won't necessarily dwell on here. The fact that she invited someone into her tent kind of suggests maybe an alternative reading would be entirely appropriate for the hero of this story. And the messiness isn't just for us, however. It is for the Israelites as well. In this particular book that often assumes that women and women's bodies are at the disposal of the men around them, whether it is the unnamed daughter of Jephthah, the general who was sacrificed for the sake of his arrogance, I've preached that one fairly recently, or the unnamed concubine thrown out to a mob to be assaulted and killed so that her master could get home safely. Judges is such a fun book to read. What can I say? You, you, you I tell you, Jael is really not the worst thing that happens in the, even just in this book. And so to find a Deborah or a Jael is startling even on the surface level. And it is all the more startling to find them in key roles in a successful campaign against the enemies of Israel. 
But then again, perhaps it's simply startling to find the Israelites successful in this moment in the first place. Because even when we correct old translations, the messiness of this story expands beyond the particular work of these three characters, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And it expands out into the entire story of the Israelite people. Because we're clearly supposed to be on their side in this whole story, right? Cheering them on against their enemies who have, we are assured, far greater firepower and technology. Don't we all love an underdog story? Go Israelites! We don't have a lot of sports to watch right now. Go Israelites! But at the same time, it is really hard to be entirely and fully on the side of a nation, this nation, this one even with whom, the one with whom we share a God and a history, it is hard to be fully and completely on the side of a nation when they come into an already inhabited land wreaking havoc and laying waste. It's not the way that we think we ought to be treating one another. And although we can know that the narratives of battle and conquest were the usually the fish stories of the ancient world, claiming near-genocidal blowouts after every minor skirmish, I can't tell you how many times the Bible tells us that the Canaanites were utterly destroyed only to fight another battle with them, you know, four paragraphs later. So, hmm, utterly destroyed, were they? Funny how that works. And although we are told throughout this narrative that God wanted them to have that land, that it was their land, after all, it is still really hard to wrap our heads around the idea that God was okay with such complete destruction and devastation on such a vast scale. That the same God who just a couple of generations earlier reminded the Israelites to care for the outsiders in their midst for they should remember that they themselves were once outsiders in Egypt. But somehow this doesn't include the Canaanites? I don't know. The God who repeatedly insisted on caring for widows and orphans is somehow simultaneously fine with creating widows and orphans on a large scale, in unending battles that burned entire cities to the ground. Something feels really off-kilter here. How do we cheer for the invaders in these days between Columbus Day and Thanksgiving when we remember continually the devastation wreaked by folks who assumed a God-given right to land and celebrated pandemics among indigenous people as proof of God's blessing? And while those indigenous folk did not have superior numbers, thank you smallpox, or firepower, or technology, as we are told the Canaanites did. The parallels we perceive, and indeed the use of texts like the one we read today to justify colonization and conquering and devastation throughout history, and to and including the modern state of Israel, should indeed make this text a very, very, very hard one to preach. This is not a text in which we should ever feel comfortable. For the Israelites, having invaded and conquered huge swaths of Canaan with the guidance and the help of their God, pretty much immediately get complacent. 
and then arrogant. And God removes God's help, at which point the invaded, conquered people fight back and gain the upper hand, and the Israelites, feeling oppressed and abandoned, and I'm having a hard time feeling sorry for them, quite frankly, cry out to God, who has not yet, it seems, yet learned to ask for their repentance in this process before coming to their aid. And so please no one ever tell me that the Old Testament God is not a God of grace. And the Israelites go flocking back, setting aside the idols of the Canaanites' gods until things get better and they get complacent again and the cycle just starts over because, you know, they set down the idols of the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah, but they set them down kind of carefully on the shelf just in case. The pendulum just swings between oppressed and oppressor back and forth in this early history of the Israelite people in this particular land. And they write it all down, not as their own history, but all these pendulum swings they write down as though it were the history of God. And maybe that's the piece that makes this text, and texts like it, so very, very tricky to preach, at least without falling into the trap of the nationalism and xenophobia that marks vast segments of modern Christianity and not just for the last 30 years. We have got to set aside generations of interpretations that have been used to maintain systems of oppressive power. We have to set aside the superficial readings that tell us that if we cry out for God to help us, that our enemies will be smited by the wrath of God. We have to set aside the insidious, tempting reading that suggests that we can puppeteer God, that we can manipulate God into giving us what we want by setting other idols on a shelf until we need them again. Or that we can use God's name to justify our selfishness and our arrogance and our greed, our domination of this world and those with whom we share it. It's a hard text to preach when one has to wonder if God is not, in fact, where the writers of God, where the writers of the text want God to be. It's a hard text to preach when one has to wonder if God is not, in fact, where the writers of the text want God to be. One has to look past all the mentions of God, all of the cultural biases and baggage, not only of the original text, but of thousands of years of midrash and sermons and translations and assumptions, just to find a little tiny nugget of challenge and hope and grace in two named women and one wise man. Because once one has spent the first three pages of one's sermon peeling apart all of the layers of messiness and pretension that create obvious simple readings, yes, that was three pages, I'm sorry, you guys. We are left with God's response to an idolatrous and really quite tiresome people and their question of how they can overcome oppression. God's response to the whining of the people is to give power into the hands of Deborah.
God's response to the whining of the people is to give power into the hands of Deborah, a woman who stands before the people, blazing, scorching, illuminating before them the truth of God. Isn't that the very definition of a prophet? Let alone a fiery prophet, as she apparently was. God's response to the whining of the people is to give them a beacon of hope in the body of one whose only worth would have been seen as her marriageability, which is not generally compatible with fieriness, though that is the difference between humans and God now, isn't it? And when Deborah does the one thing that she would have been expected to do, which is to call in a man to go and actually fight that battle against Sisera, there we see God at work again in the humble wisdom of Barak, who seems less interested in his own power and glory. Deborah tells him this isn't going to be about him, and he goes along for the ride anyway. And even if it comes out of the mouth of the woman, he is willing to follow the word of God. He is willing to follow the word of God, even when that particular woman tells him that his role will not be the decisive one but that his opponent will make the mistake that Barak didn't, which is to make assumptions about power, to believe that his way of understanding the world is the correct and obvious and natural way. For while Barak understood that God can speak and act even through bodies that our culture deems unworthy or lesser or safe, Sisera does not seem to be quite on the same page and cannot fathom that Jael might ever do anything other than what he demands of her. Hmm. He'll never, well, I was going to say he'll never make that mistake again, but God's response to the whining of these people is to call into question the assumptions that they hold as fundamental to grant power and victory, not to the expected solitary white male hero, not white, you know what I mean? but to the marginalized, to those who are willing to hear, to those who are willing to follow even when the word of God is not coming from where they want it to come and even when it doesn't sound the way they want it to sound and even when it is telling them things that aren't quite as great and glorious as their dreams may have had them want it to be. Because underneath, all of the multiple layers of humanity that cloud this story from us. We find a willingness to listen closely to where God is truly moving and truly speaking. We find a longing not for individual glory, but for the wisdom to listen well and the humility to share credit, the meekness to strive beyond human understandings for the sake of the glory of God. We find in this story a lot less about the military victory over a hugely powerful Canaanite army who had some pretty valid reasons to be so well armed, let's remember. And a lot more about the strength that comes from trusting in God rather than in human values and judgments. And we find perhaps finally a way to locate ourselves in the questions of whether we listen to the Debras of our own day whether we use our privilege with the humility of a Barak, whether we are willing to trust 
to the ultimate outsiders, the Jael, however we find them in this world, to strike a final blow, not only into the forces of oppressive power, but into our own sense of how things are supposed to be, and where God is supposed to be when we cry out for an end to oppression. The messiness of this story reminds us that the average Israelite complaining to God with his idols just tucked nicely away in a cabinet somewhere, out of sight, out of mind, probably had a lot more in common with Sisera than they ever did with Deborah, and certainly quite a lot more than they ever did with Jael. And we, who look for heroes in battles for justice and equality, would do well to remember that. For perhaps this story is only hard to preach because of our own unwillingness to listen. To those who don't fit into our neat little boxes. To those who stand before us blazing forth the truth of a God who is not interested in helping us justify our own particular beliefs about the world. But is calling us to listen for a new way of being that is not new because God has been asking it of us since Deborah was alive. Perhaps this story is only hard to preach for the reminder that the God of grace is not an invention of the New Testament after all, but a presence as uncomfortably among us as the ancients. Calling us to hear with new ears, to see with new eyes, the fiery presences among us, the prophets speaking truth even unto our generation, and the glory that comes not for any one of us, but in the trust that is built for the glory of all. Thanks be to God. Amen.